All right, welcome to the State of the Lakers presented by Dash Radio. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Thanks for coming to hang out. Reinvigorated is the word that I would use to describe tonight. By the way, no Raj tonight. He's still out of town on a work trip, although he should be back for the back-to-back on Thursday and Friday this week. Um, so riding solo tonight, but I appreciate you guys coming to hang out. Um, like I said, reinvigorated. This is a team that has struggled with belief and a willingness to do the job all season. Now, to be clear, a lot of that struggle happened with Anthony Davis on the court, but I'm hopeful that with the combination of that infusion of talent with Anthony Davis and just the reality of the situation, the predicament and the urgency that is presented by their place in the standings, I'm hopeful that effort will be less of a problem moving forward, at least as long as guys stay healthy and Frank continues to play the right guys, which I liked most of the groups that he went with tonight. He started Stanley Johnson, which I thought was really interesting. Trevor Ariza has really been struggling of late on both ends of the floor. And there's a certain, you know, balance that has to be taken there because you wonder if, if Trevor Ariza can be useful in the long run. And the only way to find out is to give him a long runway, a long distance and a lot of time for him to figure out if, if, if his body is going to be up to the task. And for whatever reason, tonight was the end of that rope and it ended up being Stanley Johnson. But one of my concerns coming into this game was going to be foul trouble. And uh, because just typically when you've got a guy like Stanley who's super aggressive, tons of ball pressure, draped all over James Harden like that, and you've got a guy like James Harden who's probably the most gifted, you know, foul grifter in, in the history of the NBA – those two things, it was inevitable that Stanley would get in trouble, which he did, but it didn't matter because the Lakers played a really good basketball team and won. Now, to be, to be clear, because of injuries uh, and the Kyrie Irving situation, that Brooklyn Nets team is not very good right now. A lot of that is, you know, I, I would have picked them, the Lakers, I would have picked the Lakers to win tonight, even if um, Anthony Davis had not played just because this is a, this is a team that is beatable right now. They're going through a similar stretch to what the Lakers were going to going through about a month and a half ago. They just don't have a ton of talent. They're playing a lot of basketball lineups that are not functional. Um, that said, it was a good win. Like Braj always says, we, we can't be picky, uh, with a team like this that has struggled to win as often as they have. Now, looking at the Anthony Davis thing. What what is so interesting is that when you plug him into the lineup, the entire team just becomes that much more functional because he can actually do the job of a starting NBA center in this league. You know, we talked a lot about how LeBron is he is a center in the sense that he can be in that position and you won't get absolutely destroyed. But he's not a traditional center in any sense of the other word. And then Dwight Howard is a backup NBA center. So plugging someone in there that is functional already just makes everything work so much. I thought it was super interesting that they didn't just force feed him in the post. They kind of used him the way that they've been using LeBron in these small ball lineups where they're using him as a screener and rolling to the basket. And yeah, he, he got a, a handful of, you know, face up touches on the wing. I think he made a pull up jumper on one of them and drove to the baseline on the other, but he wasn't as we were hoping they didn't spam that the way they did at the beginning of the year. Things stayed free-flowing, and it just worked. And one of the big reasons for that is Anthony Davis is the best defensive player in basketball. And I know that's a complicated topic because there are guys that play better defense in the NBA throughout the day-in, day-out grind of the NBA regular season, but they're not capable of the defensive ceiling 
that Anthony Davis is capable of. This is something that I talk about a lot with LeBron James. Like if I'm, if we're ranking basketball players and who the best players in the world are, I don't think I'd take anybody over Giannis for a regular season because the guy just has the motor and the youthful exuberance to be what he is at his very best night in and night out in the regular season in a way that someone like LeBron who can go through the the lethargy of just, he's been in the league forever and he's concerned about saving his legs and he's not hyped up by big crowds anymore. Like it's, you're not going to get that same, you know, effort out of LeBron night in and night out in the regular season. That said, when things get really important, when the basketball games become more meaningful, when the stakes get higher, all of a sudden LeBron can tap into something that Giannis can't. He is an unbelievable defensive player. He can be like Draymond Green when he's dialed in on that end. And then on the offensive end, he has that unique combination of extreme high-end elite offensive creation on the ball as a score mixed with that elite high-end playmaking, which only a few men of only a few players in the league are capable of. And so LeBron can hit this ceiling that Giannis just can't hit. And it's kind of like that with Anthony Davis in the regular season. It's unfortunate, and it's kind of an indictment of his motor that for whatever reason, he hasn't been able to win a defensive player of the year award or consistently be in the top of that conversation because he struggles with that. But man, when Anthony Davis dials it up, there's just nobody that can stay with him. And there in that first quarter, I think he had three blocks in his first seven minute shift and was actively disrupting everything Brooklyn was trying to do. And there was an isolation possession there at the end of 80s first shift where tried to shoot a step back over the top and AD partially blocked it. I think he got another block there in the fourth quarter on Patty Mills. He's just a devastating defensive weapon. And if they can combine some of the, you know, new influx of athletic talent with guys like Austin Reeves and Stanley Johnson with a more consistent motor with a more engaged LeBron and with Anthony Davis being back on the floor, all of a sudden we're talking about a good basketball team here. And I, I think that is, is something to get excited about. The most important part about bringing Anthony Davis back has to do with slotting. This idea is, is all, it's, when you send a group of guys out onto the floor to play basketball, each of them has a job, a list of responsibilities that they have to fill. And any five-man unit in order to succeed has to be able to check a bunch of boxes on the court. But because Anthony Davis checks so many boxes, it shrinks what everybody else has to do, even LeBron. And by virtue of that, you get everybody back into a more natural position. Now, instead of Malik Monk doing a ton of isolating, he's attacking closeouts. Now, instead of a ton of Carmelo Anthony post-ups, it's Carmelo Anthony spotting up. You know, we're going to get into Russell Westbrook in a minute and how that all works. But the point is, is everyone just kind of slots in properly. Now, LeBron James can not have to be the backline defender all the time. He can play passing lanes more. And you saw that there in that fourth quarter where he got back-to-back steals for, for run-out dunks. That's just all part of the process of adding Anthony Davis to the equation to make everyone else's job so much easier. And I think that will hopefully lead to a lot of guys who have struggled in their specific role to playing better. And as far as that slotting concept goes, that goes to an even greater extent when you add in whoever it is that the Lakers bring in at the trade deadline. Now, we're going to talk more about the trade deadline later. There's a bunch of 
you know, reporting that has been done from various sources over the course of the last week that are ranging from the Lakers have a chance to get everybody to the Lakers aren't going to make any moves. And we'll see what ends up happening. But if you can bring in someone like Eric Gordon, if you can bring in someone like Harrison Barnes, and those are just two random names, but if you can bring somebody like that in, that helps the slotting even more. Because guys like that are just capable of accomplishing so much more on the court than a very young Taylor Horton Tucker or a very young Stanley Johnson or Austin Reeves. And it just slots everybody even further into a better position on the floor for them to, to succeed, for them to play their best, to have fewer bad nights, and for this team to get in a real rhythm. Now, as far as slotting goes, this is where it gets really interesting with Russell Westbrook. Because with Anthony Davis out, there was a different kind of slotting that took place. Russell Westbrook was forced to do more. And it exposed him as somebody who wasn't capable of doing it anymore at this level. This is something I've talked about a ton on this show as of late. This idea that, you know, Russell Westbrook, because he can't shoot and because he's not a fantastic ball handler and because he doesn't have great finishing moves around the rim or short finishing moves, you know, as far as floaters and scoop shots and stuff like that before he gets to the rim. And because as a playmaker, he's kind of more just a, drive into the chaos and kick it out to the corner and hope for the best kind of guy. It was only a matter of time as his athleticism declined that he would struggle with this kind of stuff. And you saw that to a significant extent, you know, in this stretch without Anthony Davis. But now what you're seeing now that Anthony Davis is back is Russ kind of seems useless. The metaphor I use is like, it's like if, you know, some random trumpet player hopped on stage for a rock concert. Like he's just kind of out of place. It's not that he's bad necessarily, but it's like when you look at all those responsibilities that I'm talking about, the stuff that the team needs to do, all of a sudden Russ doesn't make a ton of sense. You know, they don't need him to create off the dribble anymore because in this five out system. They're just getting tons of rim pressure just from all these guys that can put the ball on the floor. Stanley Johnson can put the ball on the floor and go to the rim. Austin Reeves can put the ball on the floor. Avery Bradley actually is in a pretty good offensive rhythm as of right now. There's, there's just, there's no need to have this other guy that can stand at the top of the key and, and create offense. They don't need that anymore. So now he's being relegated off the ball. And when you relegate him off the ball, you're seeing teams just completely and utterly ignore him. And it didn't hurt the Lakers tonight, but Brooklyn was basically not paying any attention to him, even when he had the ball in his hands. There was a sequence of post-up touches in that second half where LeBron is turning, catching on the wing and turning and facing. And Russ has the, like, kick out. Russ has the ball. And James is just like, James Harden's like, I'm not going out there. And James knows best. He literally went through this in the bubble in the 2020 playoffs. He was on the floor getting doubled out at half court while Russell Westbrook was standing on the quarter in the corner and the Lakers were completely ignoring him. James Harden knows this very well. So, of course, he was willing to implement that same strategy against the Lakers. We haven't seen it a ton this year because it's the regular season and you're not going to see some super high level you know, uh, uh, crazy adventurous scheming in a regular season, but you saw it tonight from Brooklyn. And what you saw there is something you're going to see in a large dose. When we get to the postseason. you're going to see every good defensive team put a big physical forward, just like the Lakers did with Anthony Davis on Russell Westbrook. They're going to like Phoenix, for instance, Phoenix is probably going to put someone like 
you know, Jay Crowder on LeBron. And then they're going to put Mikhail Bridges on Russell Westbrook and sit his ass in the paint, have him jump passing lanes, double team post-ups, double team guys driving to the basket. And it's going to look a heck of a lot worse than this version where the Brooklyn Nets were doing it with Patty Mills, James Harden, and a bunch of G League guys. That it's only going to get harder and harder to try to make this work as we get further along and as better teams are involved. And I don't understand the, you know, how you can uh, make this work with Russ on the floor, knowing that that's going to happen. Now, what you saw, there was a counter that the Lakers used when, the, when Russ was getting ignored like that. They put him in the dunker spot, and he actually got an and one out of it. Here's the issue with that, though. That's what Bruce Brown is doing for the Brooklyn Nets. He's basically, uh, you know, kind of like a Swiss Army knife type of basketball player who's not super big, not super athletic, but he just plays super, super hard and does all this dirty work for the Nets, right? And they use him as a guy who sets ball screens and, you know, short rolls to the basket to make reads and crashes the glass and he'll sit in the dunker spot. But the difference is, is Bruce Brown doesn't take defensive possessions off. Bruce Brown doesn't have inconsistent and volatile decision-making. So what's the point of using Russ as Bruce Brown when he doesn't do Bruce Brown stuff well enough for it to be worth it in the trade-off? You know, there were several plays today where you have a sloppy turnover and he jog back on defense and not really pay attention and get burned. And that's not stuff that Bruce Brown does. There's Bruce Brown can be functional in the offense as a guy who, hangs around, hangs out around the dunker spot, but he is on the floor because of all the dirty work he does. And Russ just doesn't do that stuff. And so because of that, the Lakers are actually better off going with another wing. Take whatever your 32 minutes or whatever it is you're getting from Russ and distribute them among guys who, rather than sitting in the dunker spot, will be on the wing, attacking closeouts, be a threat from the three-point line, be a threat to put the ball on the floor, and also fulfill their defensive responsibilities, every single possession, do their job. That is a more tenable option. Now, again, it's complicated because of the situation surrounding Russ. We saw this article come out today from Ramona Shelburne. It's absolutely wild, basically talking about how the Lakers have kind of made their bed and there's not a whole lot they can do, but there were some interesting bits of information in there. For instance, Apparently, Russ doesn't take very kindly to you criticizing him in a film session, which was a wild thing to read. I mean, as someone I've sat in these film sessions when I was playing in college and I mean, you're in front of your whole team. You're in front of your coaching staff. There's video footage on the wall of what you did wrong. I can't even imagine standing up and being like, no, I didn't do anything wrong there. That's just like one of the most outrageous displays of ego that I can even imagine. And again, that's not entirely uncommon in the NBA. Guys have big egos. LeBron has a history of, you know, Shaquille O'Neal said once that in 2010, LeBron wasn't super responsive in film sessions. But a couple difference there. One, LeBron was a kid. He's still like 23, 24 years old. Two, he was LeBron James. He was the MVP of the league. There was a certain amount of leeway or willingness to put up with BS because it was LeBron James at the peak of his powers defending MVP. And so you, you just kind of went with it. And, but again, at the same time, LeBron over the course of his career has become 
more mature and capable of handling that stuff because he grew up. And for whatever reason with Russ, you're getting that type of attitude. You're getting that top of the league, top of the world type of ego without any of the on-court production. And this is why I think it's so important to do whatever it takes to try to get him off the roster before the deadline. Because the general manager and the ownership group has given Frank Vogel the right to bench him, as we saw last week in that fourth quarter. But one of the problems is, is he didn't handle it well. Made a scene, left the floor, left the arena, didn't even hang out for the Lakers postgame meeting. So the thing is, if he's not taking to this whole con- this whole situation very well, then you run into the dangerous situation where you might have to do this again in a postseason series, and now you've got Russell Westbrook still on the roster, and however that reaction goes surrounding that. And it could get ugly. And so my thing is, like, get ahead of it. If you know Russ is going to be a problem from a matchup perspective in a playoff series, and if you know he's not going to handle it well when you have to take him out of the lineup – then what's the point? And that's where, you know, kind of like when I start to look at potential trades, it's not just about what you might get back. It's about the concept of dealing with what could go down with Russ, you know, and essentially, you know, is there a, is there a absolute perfect outcome where maybe Russ has some sort of dramatic wake up call and he embraces the dirty work. He changes his attitude. He becomes what I wanted him to be, which was this team's Drew Holiday. You know, the guy that plays off of two superior offensive players, primarily focuses on being a power guard on offense, trying to get to the rim, but on the defensive end, takes that responsibility personally. Understands that that's his biggest contribution to the team. That's what you're getting from Drew Holiday. That's what I was hoping for in terms of my attempt to rationalize how this could work before the season, but Russ has never embraced that. Now, is there a, a small chance, like I said, that he might embrace that? Yeah. But if you're trying to project forward with this team and you're trying to make decisions around the deadline, what's more likely to happen guys? Is it more likely that Russ continues to be this guy or is it more likely that he becomes an issue down the line? And that that's why I stand where I stand with the, the concept of, of getting him off the roster. It's about getting ahead of the potential problem, get ahead of the idea that teams won't be able to, you know, that teams will ignore him and you won't be able to functionally run your offense in a playoff series and get ahead of the potential attitude problem that can come with it. It's a, it's a problem. And I, and I'm hopeful that the Lakers will do something about it. As far as that trade goes, I wanted to talk about this John wall trade a little bit more. Because I kind of laughed it off last week when I initially heard of it in the Mark Stein report, but it's kind of picking up steam. There are a bunch of factors at play here that make it a little bit more realistic than people think. For starters, John Wall is with Clutch, and Clutch is really trying hard to get John out of Houston. Um, The guys on the Hoop Collective did a, a big thing today talking about how he's a much better catch-and-shoot shooter. He's over 37% on catch-and-shoot threes in his last two seasons that he actually played, and that he, in theory, is a less volatile, a little bit more controlled playmaker. And most importantly, he is actually amenable to the idea of not being used or being taken out of the rotation, as we've seen in Houston. Now, I'm not saying 
that I would make that move. I'm just saying it's something that Laker fans need to at least start to mentally prepare themselves for because there are a few things working in favor of that that make it a possibility. Now, so much has to go right. So, like Russ would have to continue to struggle the way he has been. The, the Rockets would have to be amenable to taking second round picks instead of a first round pick because that would be an, like ditching the, the first round pick to get off a of Russ for John Wall would be an absolute travesty. I think Laker fans need to be more open to spending that pick, but certainly not on someone like John Wall. But like I said, it, the, the Lakers just Laker fans just need to be prepared for the fact that that is a realistic outcome. And should John Wall come back, you know, it, could, it certainly couldn't be any worse than what we're getting from Russ. I think Russ is a much better athlete than John at this point in his career, but I think John is a, potentially a little bit more capable of of fitting in. Again, don't want to see that but it's just something Laker fans have to uh, potentially be prepared for. Now, as far as this first round pick goes, because I've seen this, this was reported by Eric Pincus uh, in the last couple of days, this idea that the Lakers are hesitant to throw this first round pick into anything. And that to me is completely ridiculous because everything we know about, you know, rebuilds tells us that, Hey, guess what? You can get first round picks anytime you're having a bad season. Why? Because you can call teams and tell them, hey, we'll take that overpaid guy you have and we'll take that overpaid guy and we'll eat his salary for a year or two, but you're giving us a first round pick in exchange. We've seen this so many times in recent years. If you if things go off the rails, you can accumulate picks quickly. So let's say LeBron ages out of the league by 2025. And let's say Anthony Davis just isn't good enough to be a franchise cornerstone and the team is massively underachieving and 2025, 2026 comes around, and it's just not working. In those seasons, even if you spent the 2027 first-round pick on a player this year, pretty quickly you can make calls around the league, take back salary, take back picks, and do a rebuild. There is a playbook out there now, Oklahoma City is, is showing us, where you can pretty quickly amass picks just by being bad for a season or two. Now, you obviously don't want to get stuck in that. But my point is, is like there's no scenario where clinging to that first round pick as if as though it's the most important thing in the world will pay off for the Lakers. If they're good over the course of the next half decade, then that pick is very it carries very little value because it's a late first round pick. And if they're bad and they use the pick, you know, to, to get something in the uh, uh, in this season, it'd be easy enough for them to recoup it just simply by doing what every other bad team does this time of year. So I think, I think that that pick needs to be in the conversation for any deal in order to get it done, especially when you realize what's at stake. What's at stake is LeBron James in his age 37 season playing some of the best basketball of his career and Anthony freaking Davis coming back from an injury looking good. And there's a core here that could potentially make a run to win a championship. Meanwhile, Golden State has Draymond Green with a back issue that could may or may not be serious. The Phoenix Suns don't have anywhere near the top end talent that the Lakers have. There is an opportunity here. There's a, a slight crack in the door. There's a window. You need to try to capitalize on that. And the only way to do so is to push your chips into the middle of the table. And so I hope that the Lakers are, are willing to do that. All right, I had two, two last quick things I wanted to hit, and then we'll get out of here. 
So this Jeremy Grant thing, which I think is, is, is really funny for a bunch of reasons. So basically the report comes out saying that Jeremy Grant has decided his, his representation is basically telling Detroit, like, hey, these are the teams we want to go to and telling the rest of the league, like, don't pick up our guy unless you plan on using him as a primary option and paying him all sorts of money. And basically it's cooling the market. And that's part of the reason why Detroit hasn't been getting great offers. Now, again, Jeremy Grant's mind is made up. He's going to do what he wants to do. And look, like a lot of this, my theories, it has to do with pressure. I mean, it's not just about the money. It's not just about the touches. It's the fact that, hey, look at Russell Westbrook. When you're on a team that has championship aspirations and you don't play well, it doesn't go well for you with the fan base. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that. There's a lot of pressure that comes with expectation. Whereas when you're with Detroit or when you're somewhere else in the league, there's no pressure that comes with that expectation when there is no expectation. So from that standpoint, like I think from I think Jeremy Grant just looks at it like I'm having fun in Detroit, making lots of money. And guess what? If I shoot poorly, no one cares. His percentages have tanked this year. Most of you don't even know, except for the fact that you looked it up because you thought he might be a Laker. That's the reality of his situation in Detroit. He is in a very cush situation in terms of pressure. So that's my theory. But what's silly about it to me is Jeremy Grant is a very good basketball player. And he's not going to struggle the way that Russell Westbrook will. Chances are, because he's that skilled, he's going to thrive. When he was in Denver with Jamal Murray, with Nikola Jokic, before he put in that summer of work to prep for being a primary ball handler, he did a great job in the possessions that were thrown his way. And that team was spamming the Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic pick and roll. They were not getting other people involved as often in terms of initiating actions. This Laker team and a lot of these teams, like the Clippers, a lot of these teams that are running this modern five-out attack. There's a couple of other teams that are linked to them. Utah Jazz are a great example. They're a, you know, a four-out, one-in team, but they let all four of those guys initiate. Boston Celtics have been mentioned. They're a team that lets everybody from the perimeter initiate. When you're in these modern systems, when you have all these guys on the floor that can pass, shoot, and dribble, everybody gets touches. It's really about just who's in a rhythm. Like on any given possession, you're probably going to get two or three opportunities to drive and kick. So the idea that like you need to have this guy, this is something I've been pushing back for on the Russ thing nonstop as it pertains to LeBron wanting Russ. I just don't understand this idea that like this, this one ball thing was proven wrong all the way back with the LeBron and Dwayne Wade stuff. And that was in a completely different era. It was proven wrong with Chris Paul and James Harden. And it's going to be proven more and more wrong as time goes on because basketball is evolving in a way to where everybody has the ball in their hands. Everybody puts it on the floor. Everybody creates and everybody kind of feeds off of that. And you're seeing it, You're seeing that in Detroit anyway. And the other thing too, is he's going to go to some other team. He's going to go to some team where they're going to give him the ball more, but they're also going to be rebuilding and trying to put other guys who can dribble around him. Like if he goes to Washington, you don't think Kyle Kuzma is going to want his possessions. You don't think, you know, Bradley Beal or, or Spencer Dinwiddie are going to want their possessions. Like it, like every everywhere you go, it's the same issue. It just it was really nonsensical to me from the start, and that's why I think it primarily has to do with just the pressure and him just wanting to play basketball, collect his paycheck, and go home. I respect it, but let's just call it what it is. Uh, all right. Lastly, before we get out of here, guys, I wanted to talk about James Harden because 
We saw something tonight that we saw in the 2020 bubble that I think is very interesting. In the 2020 bubble, James Harden put up monster numbers against the Lakers on good percentages, but they pretty much rendered him ineffective in terms of controlling the outcome of the game. And you saw that again tonight. James Harden put up big numbers, had monster rebounding game too. shot, shot the ball. Well, for generally well, not, not, you know, over 50% or anything, but he shot reasonably well for James Harden game, but it just didn't seem to have much impact. You never really felt like James was controlling the game. You never really felt like James had a real chance to win. And this is kind of like a recurring theme in the James Harden world. This idea that his repetitiveness is what undercuts him. You know, the announcers on TNT actually did a really nice job of describing this to those of you who are listening. The difference between dealing with James Harden in a set defense in the half court versus dealing with him in the full court. The difference between isolating one-on-one or beating a guy off the dribble when things are kind of fluid and in motion versus all five Lakers staring at you and you have to make a decision or make a read or make a play. Things get complicated when the game slows down. And the Lakers did a nice job, especially when they were in the half court tonight, of just making things difficult. But most importantly, they were able to use that same kind of bracketing trap thing that they used in the bubble. They would just, as Bruce Brown or whoever it was, Claxton was setting the ball screen, they would basically just send him to the ball screen and have the guy guarding the screener just bracket on the other side. And James would kind of take a couple of dribbles and he wouldn't want to keep going because he knew if he kept going, then the trap would come hard. So he kind of like stay with the dribble and then he'd swing the ball away. And when they'd swing it, the Lakers could easily rotate out of it because James hasn't created an advantage. He needs to actually pull the double team away in order to get some sort of real advantage. And it wasn't surprising to me at all that it worked again, because this is something that James Harden has struggled with throughout his whole career. Every possession with James Harden begins on the wing extended, either on the right side or the left side, him with a live dribble, either isolation or pick and roll. If you see that exact same play, 60 times in a game, you're just going to get good at guarding it. He might have his possessions where he gets a bucket, usually when things are disheveled or when you make a mistake. But generally speaking, he's going to eventually struggle or run out of gas. This is why he struggles a lot in fourth quarters or in playoff series as the series drag on. He's just so repetitive in the way he attacks. Then let's juxtapose that with LeBron. I watched LeBron and he can do those wing extended possessions where he's running in isolation. He can do those wing extended possessions where he's running a pick and roll, but he can also come off of a down screen and shoot a pull up. He can also go to the low block and punish a, a mismatch there. He can also turn and face. You saw in the third quarter, he just was like, Hey, I'm just going to catch the ball 17 feet from the basket on this left wing. I'm going to turn and face, do a couple jab steps and knock down a three. And then once you guys start doubling, I'm going to start passing out of that. That's a whole other element to his game. Off the basketball, he's devastating as a cutter. And then you, you just, just in general, LeBron can attack you in you know, a half dozen different ways, a half dozen different places on the floor. So the, predictabil- the predictability element is out of the picture. He can, if for whatever reason, there's a action that he's trying that isn't working, he'll just go somewhere else on the floor and try it until he finds that crack in your armor and he can break through that lack of versatility, that lack of variety from James Harden will always be what holds him back in my opinion. And it's really unfortunate because he's one of the best two guards of all time. And when I'm looking at two guards 
And you look at the guys who came before him, guys like Dwayne Wade, guys like Kobe Bryant, guys like Michael Jordan, every single one of them was a dominant low, low post player. The Miami Heat used Dwayne Wade nonstop attacking mismatches uh, down on the block with his little, with his arsenal of floaters and hook shots. They all had a versatility element that James has never added to his game. Now, I don't know if it's entirely his fault or if it's a product of that and the Houston system, which I think leaned heavily on analytics and the idea like, hey, when you run this high pick and roll or when you run this extended isolation, we're averaging 1.26 per possessions when you shoot or when you make one pass. And so it pushed him to lean further into that stuff instead of understanding that there was, it was really easy to scheme against it in a playoff series and basically render it useless. And most importantly, when you get to a tiny number of possessions in a pivotal game, no one's giving you 1.26 points per possession anymore. It's like you either score or you don't in that smaller sample size. And we saw that limitation throughout his career in those moments. And I just thought it was interesting because like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about James Harden since he went to Brooklyn, this idea that he's evolved. He's become a playmaker now. He's no longer doing the things that he used to do. And, you know, that might all work if Brooklyn's healthy, just simply because they have so much talent. And, you know, James might get a trophy anyway. But, you know, just watching him again tonight, I'm just sitting there watching and I'm like, man, you know, I wrote an article back when I was writing ages ago. I wrote an article about James after he lost, I believe, in 2018 or 2019. It's the year he won the MVP. And I wrote all the same stuff that I'm telling to you guys. And it's just so interesting to me because here we are four years later, same guy. Hasn't added a damn thing to his game. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we see like what we saw tonight. You know, a guy who can be rendered somewhat ineffective with simple basic strategies as soon as things get slowed down or repetitive. All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. Raj is going to be back for our back-to-back on Thursday and Friday. This is going to be on Dash Radio tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and we'll be on our podcast feed here in about an hour or so. Thanks, as always, for your guys' support, and we will see you on Thursday.